This is the Byron Bledsoe Podcast, Senior Pastor of C3 Church in Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much for checking out today's message. We hope this word encourages you and inspires you. Let's jump into the message. Yes, we, we teach through books of the Bible. And so we're going through the book of Genesis, the very first book, all the way back in the Old Testament, very first book. And today we hit some verses that are, it's one of the strangest passages in all of Scripture. Like it's one of those things, I thought about asking Barry to preach today, like you handle it. But it's one of those deals that, it, it, there's just some, there's some odd language and it's, it's, it's strange and it's hard to know what it means. But that's one of the benefits of teaching through books of the Bible it forces you to deal with verses that we'd never talk about otherwise. Like, I would not just pick these verses randomly to talk about on a Sunday, but because we're going through the Bible, because I want you to know your Bible. When life gets difficult, it's not, it's not enough to know what you believe. You need to know why you believe it. And so Genesis chapter 6, here we go. Ready? When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. When human beings began to increase in number. From Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 6, it's 1,600 years of history that flies by. And in that time, population is growing. The, the population on the planet is increasing, but sons of God and daughters of humans, what is he talking about? Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were heroes of old, men of renown. Nephilim, that, that word, that term, it's only used in one other place. I think it's Numbers chapter 13, where it's talking about the children of Israel sending the spies into the promised land. And when they go into the promised land, they said, my gosh, they're huge. The Nephilim are there. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. It's only used in two different places. But these are like freaks of nature, some big old boys. That, that's who this is talking about. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Every inclination, every thought, every attitude, every motivation was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe out from the face of the earth the human race that I've created, and with him the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. The sons of God, the daughters of men. What does that mean? I don't know. Let's pray and go home. Now, I, I, I'm going to give you four different theories. There, there are four common theories that biblical scholars kind of fall in one of these four categories and believe the sons of God are one of these four things. But, but this is all just theory, thoughts, we're not 100% sure. There are passages we hit in the Bible that are hard to understand. But i got to be honest with you. I am so glad that our God is so big, my mind can't understand everything. But the point of what he's trying to drive home, we will capture. But here are the four theories. Sons of God, who are they? Some theologians say it's the godly line of Seth. The godly line of Seth. These are people that are godly, that honor God, that live their lives, and that's who it is. Other people say, no, it's angels. And the sons of God, that, that phrase sons, plural, sons of God, is used about three different times in the Bible, and every time it's used, it's referring to angels. 
So the sons of God could be angels, had kids with the daughters of men. Are, are we about to talk about angel sex? I think so. I think so. Or, or another option, number three, fallen angels. It, it could be that the sons of God, because it talks about spiritual beings, it talks about angels, and there were a third of the angels that were kicked out of heaven. doesn't mean they're living like the sons of God now, but it could be fallen angels uh, that, that do this because there's an entirely new kind of person created in the Nephilim that, that are larger than life, larger than human and human, so it, it could be that. And then the fourth option is demon-possessed men. It could just be some demon-possessed men that say, oh, she's attractive, that's, that's who I'm going to marry, and I'm going to base it just on her looks. It, it could be any one of these four. Now, I want to give you my opinion. Which one of the four that I kind of think makes the most sense to me? But here's what I want to say to you. This is my opinion. So anytime I'm telling you my opinion, stop taking notes. It's just my opinion. It's not Bible. Like, and if you disagree with me, we're not going to fight about it. If you think it's one of the other four, cool. Or one of the other three, that's cool. But here's my opinion. I believe it's fallen angels. And here's why. The enemy knew. Remember earlier in Genesis where God says, I'm, he's going to send a Savior. And he says to the enemy, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And when he says that, we know that the enemy knows a Savior is going to be born of a woman. So it's not hard to imagine the enemy thinking, if our destroyer is going to come from the line of women, then let's destroy the line of women. Let's dilute and pollute humanity. And if the fallen angels could marry every woman and have kids with them, it would change humanity. And Jesus cannot come from evil. And so is this a way to sort of thwart the plan of God? And by the way, that may be because what we're about to dive into is Noah and the flood in the next few verses. That may be why God flooded the world. God has sent judgment to people before. God has judged individuals. God has judged nations. We have found that uh, before in time. So it, it could be that God is about to extend this kind of judgment on the whole world because that's what's about to happen. He's, he's judged individuals. He's judged nations, but never the whole world. And it could be that the world was so polluted from evil, from, from the fallen angels, and them having kids with women, that the only people left who were untainted were Noah and his family. That is one option. But it's just my thoughts. At the end of the day, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I, God put me on the welcoming committee, not the planning committee. So I don't have all the details. I, I'm just not sure about it. But in the life of C3, there are some things we hold with a closed hand, and there are some things we hold with an open hand. A closed hand, Jesus is the only way to know God in a personal way. Jesus is the Son of God. He came to earth, lived a perfect life, never sinned one time, born of a virgin, and at the end of his life, he was murdered on a cross for your sin and for mine. Three days later, he got up from the dead, defeating sin and death, and the only way that we can know the God who invites us to call him Father is through a relationship with Jesus. That's, those are closed-hand issues. We're not fighting about that. Those are not up for negotiation. That's what we believe, and that is rock solid. We're not moving from that. Open hand. Open hand are things that you may think one thing and I may think a different thing, and that's cool. At the end of time, there's something called the rapture where the church is taken, and some people believe that's going to happen before what's called the tribulation. Some people think it's going to happen in the middle of the tribulation. Some people think it's going to happen some other time. Hey, we're not fighting about it. It's open hand. Open hand. And I may have a strong opinion about what I think, and you have a strong opinion about what you think, and that's fine. One of the things we have a tendency to do is we pick a whole lot of open-hand stuff and put it in a closed hand and fight with people about it. You know what the Greek word for that is? Stupid. 
It's, it's not even Greek. I mean, like, like, what are we doing? We get so caught up on these side roads of things that we miss the point. And so if you think it's one of those other options, man, good for you. You get the Bucky Beaver Award. I don't care. I'm just giving you my best opinion, but I'm not sure about it. I think the important point is let's not focus on what we don't know. We get so caught up sometimes in what we don't know that we miss what we do know. And what we do know is where there's power and traction for growth in life. What, what is it that we do know? The big idea here, you can follow sinful desires or you can follow God. That's the big idea that's, that's unfolding. Don't choose ungodly over godly. Don't choose the practical term. is Don't choose a mate, someone you're going to marry, just because you think they're hot. Just because you think that you, you see someone to try, oh, oh my gosh, that's who I want to marry. You don't even know her, Jethro. Like, you don't know what she believes. You don't know if she's mean. You don't know if she'll stab you in your sleep. You have no idea. She may be cray-cray. You've never met her. You just look at her and think, oh my God, that's my wife. <laughs> You're smoking crack. You have no idea. Listen, and, and by the way, whoever you marry, you stay with them long term, everything they got's going to start sagging at some point. So if you're just doing it based on looks, you are messing up your entire future. The most important thing for you to find, if you want to have an amazing life, if you want to have an incredible life, is the first thing you do is you marry somebody that, that is following Jesus. I didn't say loves Jesus because everybody says they love Jesus. But the only people that actually love Jesus are the people that follow his teachings. Now, that does not mean you shouldn't be attracted to the person. No, you need to be attracted. I, I did a wedding years ago. <sighs> I did a wedding for this couple, and a couple years went by. They moved away to another state, then they moved back. And the wife called me, and, and she said, um, hey, I need, to, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to somebody because my husband won't have sex with me. Anytime a woman starts talking to me about her sex life, I'm like, okay, I'll pray for you. You've got to talk to somebody else. Like, I'm going to pass you off to a lady in the life of the church. I'm not, I can't talk to you about this. But I called the husband, and here's what that joker said to me. I said, hey, man, I got a call from your wife. Here's what she said that you don't have sex with her. And he said, honestly, pastor, I'm just not attracted to her. I said, you, you what? Were you attracted? No, I, honestly, I've never been attracted to her. I just know she's a godly woman and loves God, and so I wanted to honor God. And I felt like my being attracted or any sexual desires are kind of more of a base nature. And so I wanted to live above that. And I just, I married her because I think she's godly, but I'm not attracted to her at all. You give me that information before I do the wedding. Like, not after. Like, you just set up a freaking train wreck in your life. No, no, no. Being attracted is extremely important. You've got to have that kind of attraction. It's just not the most important. Somebody that follows the teachings of Jesus, that's number one. There's not a close second. But somewhere on the list down here, you need to be attracted to him, yes. But, but these are people, the sons of God, that just looked at women and said, oh, we're attracted. That's what we want to do. And so often, we give up what God has for us in our relationships, and we choose what we want. We grab temporary feelings to the neglect of long-term blessing. I'm going to do what I want to do right now. I'm going to be with who I want to be with right now, and I'm, the future will figure itself out. That is a painful ride. It's becoming a consistent theme. In the beginning of humanity, in these first few pages in the Bible, that, that when it comes to choice, we have a propensity to choose what we want for us over what God wants for us, forgetting that what God wants for us is always better than what we want for us. 
And then there's this one verse, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So God regrets creating humanity because of the propensity and level of sin and evil in every thought, every inclination. But he finds this one person and that guy's family who finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. In a world that has gone wheels off, where most people worship what they desire rather than what God says, are you somebody that God would say, I find favor in you? You're somebody that impresses me in the way you live for me. And the whole thing is a setup for Noah and the ark. One of the most common Bible stories in all of the Word of God. And that's the problem with it. We're so familiar with Noah and the ark, and it has been so used as a children's story that we miss the meaning that's much deeper than the fluffy, light-hearted children's story. This is not a children's story. This is a story that involves horrific and tragic death. It involves judgment. It involves pain. It involves disobeying God. It is a very uncomfortable story. It is a real story. It actually happened at a time in history, and God gives us great detail and specificity. Do you think Noah was a real person? Like, do you think that really happened? Like God flooded the earth and Noah built this boat and he and his family are saved on the boat? I think he's a real person because Noah's mentioned several times throughout the pages of the Bible and Jesus talks about Noah twice. Now, if Jesus talks about somebody, I'm just, I'm believing it. I'm believing that it's true. So I think it's a, it's more than a story, it's history. Verse 14. God talking to Noah, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. He picks a wood that floats easily. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. Seal that bad boy so that it's going to float. This is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door on the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. It's a three-story boat. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You're, able to bring, you're to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground. Will come to you, notice this, will come to you to be kept alive. You're to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. And this, ne this next verse, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. God told Noah to build the ark one time. And he spends 120 years doing it. God only had to say something one time. I think we're starting to understand why Noah's a man that would find favor in the eyes of the Lord because God says it one time and Noah does it. How many times has God told you you need to forgive that person? How many times has God said, hey, your, your temper, you need to back off of that. You need to learn some self-control. What is it that God has to say to you over and over again? One time. Man, I'm ashamed to admit, there are things God has had to talk to me about a lifetime. One time. If you take these dimensions, I don't know what you picture when you picture the ark. A lot of us, if you grew up in church, you know, these kids' drawings, we color this picture of a boat that comes to a point on each end, and it's got a guy with a beard hanging out the top window with a bird with a little branch in his mouth. I, I don't know what you picture, but it's really 
a huge rectangular barge. That, that's what he built. It's a big rectangular barge. It's 450 feet long, 45 feet high, and 75 feet wide. It's got three stories. And then at the very top of it, there's 18 inches that are open all the way around except the corners for ventilation so that air can come through in the ark. It's about 100,000 square feet. You could put over 20 basketball courts in this boat. It's 1.5 million cubic feet. But here's what's interesting. There's no rudder. There's no will. There's no ability to steer this. All it's going to do is float because God's going to take care of where it goes. He just says, build it and get in it, and I'll take care of where it goes. Kind of like life. I want you to build your life on my word, step into it, and I'll take care of where it goes. You don't have, listen, one of the greatest things some of you could do for your life is stop steering. Let God guide and direct where you go. And it takes 120 years to build it. Remember that verse we read that it said the years of man will be 120 years? Most biblical theologians believe that it's speaking about from that moment where God told Noah to build the ark, it takes 120 years. And then man is going to be wiped out except for Noah and his family. Chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I've made. And then there's another verse, and Noah did all the Lord commanded him. It is a reminder that partial obedience is not obedience. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Sometimes we feel good if we're partially obeying. The book of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the manner of doing. And I'm in church on Sunday, so I'm obeying. We pick out things in, in the Bible that we're obeying, but, but Noah did all. Partial obedience is not obedience. Everything that God is telling you in your life, it has to be founded in Scripture. God will never tell you anything that contradicts with His Word. His Word is foundational. That's where you find truth. But based on His Word and how God's speaking to you, what are the areas that God is saying, hey, you need to obey me, and we're ignoring it? Now, Noah was 600 years old. Oh, man. 600 years. Geriatric Noah when the floodwaters came on the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals of birds and all the creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. After the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the six, listen to the specificity. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst Great deep, burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain, rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. There are a few things that we're not sure about, and there are some things that if you grew up in church, you may have been taught that are not actually in the Bible. For example, you may have heard, and years ago, years ago I taught this. I was so wrong. You may have been taught it's the first time it ever rained. The Bible doesn't say that. I mean, maybe, but we don't. 1,600 years, you've got some crispy vegetation if it's never rained. We, we have no idea, though. God doesn't say. But a lot of times, oh, first time God sent rain. We don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. We do know well the impact of hurricanes and floods. 
But we've taken this tragedy and we've put it in children's stories when it's really the most horrific judgment God has ever extended on planet Earth. Where was Noah and his family in the ark? I don't know. But if I'm Noah, I'm on the bottom level. I'm on the bottom level because if I'm three stories up near that 18 inches of ventilation, have you ever heard humanity scream in horror when they're dying? Every friend, every classmate, every coworker, everybody else on the planet is getting wiped out. You think they were quiet? That had to be the most horrific sounds Noah could have ever heard. Such a cruel God. Such a ruthless, angry God. No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, this is a God that stood by for 1,600 years and watched humanity destroying itself. This is a God that says, I'm going to provide a way out and a way of salvation, and it's going to take 120 years to build it, and you're going to see your salvation being built. This is a God who extends incredible patience and is long-suffering. While he watches us laugh at his standards, mock his word, disregard his instruction and do what we want in life, live lives of deliberate disobedience to God, who's now tired of watching us hurt ourselves and hurt people that he loves, a God who gives them 120 years to discover a way to salvation and only eight people get in the boat. It's a story of judgment. But more than that, it's a story full of love and grace and mercy. A God who had a different plan for us. We picked this. We chose this. We ignored God. We brought this on ourselves. And this was God saying, we've got to have a start over for your sake and for my sake. For the people that will be born in the future, we've got to start this whole thing over. This was a tremendous act of love and mercy. One of the things that's interesting to me, did you notice in the text the animals just show up? Like, I don't know if they got all in a line, and you can see a line for miles, and they're coming in, or if they all just kind of crowded the door at once and were pushing each other. I, I don't know how they got there. Here's what I do know. Those animals obeyed God a lot better than a lot of people do. God said, show up. They show up. Wait, God, are you sure? Why do you want me to go there? Really, it's, it's not convenient. i got to go over the hill and through the wood. Like, the stuff we argue with God about. God told animals to go. They just go. Because when you obey God and you give God a quick yes, you find salvation much faster. Noah and his family and these animals, they're on the boat for about, give or take a few days, but about 350 days they're going to spend floating on this boat. It has been calculated based on the number of species that were on earth at that time by people way smarter than me. It's calculated that there were about 36,000 animals on that boat. 36,000, but they only took up one-third of the space. Two-thirds of the space was left available for supplies and everything they would need because they're going to be floating for 350 days. And if you grew up in church, you may have been told that while Noah was building this ark for 120 years, people were mocking him, making fun of him, calling him names. Can I tell you? That's not in the Bible. 
You can't find that in the Bible. I mean, maybe they were mocking him, but you know what they also could have been doing? Hey, have you heard about that guy over in the next town? He's building this huge boat. You've got to go see it. They're giving tours of it. I mean, they're selling tickets, and it's amazing. We've never seen anything be built like this. They may have mocked him. They may have admired him. We don't know. Nowhere in the Bible does it say people were mocking him while he was building the ark. You can't find that. But if you grew up in church, you were told that because often in church, we tend to add things. We like the stories to help God out because his version needs help. It's just not true. Also, if you grew up in church, you may have been told that when the doors closed to the ark and the rain started falling, people were banging on the door, please let me in. Not in the Bible. Not one time. Maybe they were. But, but we have no idea. It doesn't address that. What we do know is in 2 Peter, the Word of God says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. We do know he's a really good shipbuilder. Ship, ship with a P. Shipbuilder. He's a really, is that me? He's a really good shipbuilder. Yeah, didn't do it. But he's not a very good preacher. He was a preacher of righteousness. But for 120 years, he's building an ark, and he's sharing the message of God, and he's sharing the love of God. And not one person outside of his family says, I'm getting on the boat. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of a unique reality. reality. Our responsibility is to be obedient and to share, but the results are not up to us. The results are up to God. Only God controls the results. Only God can move in the hearts of people. There's somebody you've been inviting for years to come and they've never come. You keep inviting you're responsible to be obedient. You're responsible to do what Scripture teaches. You're not responsible for the results. I, I love the fact that C3 is growing the way it is. And if you look around, like family of five comes in, they're going to have a hard time finding seats. So some of y'all might want to check out 9.30 or 6 p.m. if you don't have kids fifth grade and younger. Great options. I want to encourage you because this service will grow faster than the others because it's when most people come. So if you have flexibility to come at 9.30 or 6 p.m., please do that. But the reality is we can't control the growth of C3, and I don't try to. Man, I want to see God do a lot in people's lives, but the results, that, that depends on God. I can't change anybody's life, and neither can you. We're just supposed to be obedient. But 120 years of doing something just because God told him to do it once, and it doesn't seem to change anyone's life outside of his family. He gave up his dreams. He put down his ambition. His calendar, his plans, he set it aside for 120 years because God told him to do something one time. Ten years in, when it's taking longer than he thought it would, he doesn't quit. Fifty years in, he's still building this ark and no animals have shown up yet. He doesn't stop. A hundred years in, he's building this boat and nobody's asked if they can come on board with him when it's finished. But he keeps going. God only had to tell him once, and he sticks to it every single day for 120 years. God, would you please, would you please work in my marriage and bless my relationship? And God says, I'll do that, but you need to start serving her and honoring her and loving her the way a real man loves and treats a woman. And you last about a day and a half until you get pissed off. 120 years just because God said do something and he, said, he stays faithful doing it. We live in a world where people outside are drowning every day. 
they're living their lives, their way. And you keep praying for them and you keep inviting them, but, but they haven't come yet. Noah keeps going, I think, because he knows the end of the story. God tells him the end of the story and exactly what he's going to do. He heard it straight from God. There, there's no doubt. And by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus, listen to me. There's no doubt who wins. Like, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I know what's going to happen ultimately. I know what's going to happen for eternity. I, I have no idea what's going to happen in the next six months, but I, but I do know ultimately for eternity, I'm good. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're good. We, there's no doubt who wins. There's no doubt what's going to happen. There's also no doubt there's going to be another judgment. Like this was God judging people on earth, but there's another judgment coming. First book of the Bible talks about a judgment. Last book of the Bible talks about a judgment that is still coming. And there is no doubt that every single person that takes their last breath spends eternity in one of two places. No doubt. I don't know if I believe that. You will one day. And I don't say that with any excitement at all. Like, think about this. Think about this for a second. Don't you think if there was any other way for God to rescue humanity, don't you think if there was any other way to know God and be forgiven and spend forever in heaven, don't you think if there was any other way than God sending his only son, he would have done that? which kind of puts the kibosh on, there are many ways to God. No, there's not. Jesus said, I am the truth, the way, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. I don't agree with that. That means you think Jesus is a liar. So don't tell me that Jesus is a good teacher. Don't tell me there are things you can learn from Jesus because you don't learn from liars. He was either Lord or a liar. You've got to decide what you believe about it. But the truth is, every person you know and every person in this room at some point is going to take their last breath and step into forever. And forever lasts a lot longer than anything here on earth. And you're going to spend it one of two places, and everybody you love is going to spend it one of two places. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this in our lives or in, in our relationships and our friendships? We live in and we embrace obedience. That's what Noah did. God told him one time, and he did it. And when it got hard, he kept doing it. And when it didn't look effective, he kept doing it. And when it felt like a waste of time, he kept doing it. He didn't stop, and he didn't quit. Part of the obedience for you and for me, as followers of Jesus, there's something God has told us not just one time, but multiple times. In fact, it's one of the primary messages in all of Scripture. God told Noah something one time, and he did it for 120 years, and he rescued his family, and he set the stage for all of us to be rescued. We wouldn't be here if my man had not obeyed God. But there's something that God has said over and over again. It's a constant theme in his word. God says, I sent my son Jesus to seek and to save the lost. When Jesus was on earth, the last words he says before he goes back to, the back to heaven is, hey, I want you to reach people. I want you to love people. I want you to make a difference in people's lives. People that don't know me, I want you to invite them. I want you to tell them about me. He gives us what's called the Great Commission. Reach the world. So in light of the fact that every single person you and I know, when they take their last breath, is going one of two places. Who is it that you know that's going to stand before God one day but look in your direction and say, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you invite me? Why didn't you share with me? You know why we're doing First Look Sunday? Because 86% of people 
according to massive surveys done by Barna, 86% of people said they would go to church next Sunday if someone they know invited them. You know why Easter's a big deal? Do you know why we pack the house at Easter? Because you invite like crazy. Did you know that if you did that every week, we'd pack the house? Do you know how many people are drowning in hopelessness and drowning in loneliness? And we have positioned ourselves uniquely and specifically where we don't hear the horrific screams that are happening in the depths of their souls and the pain they're living with in their lives. We've learned to distract ourselves with our busyness and ignore the pain of people around us so we don't invite our neighbors, we don't invite our friends, our coworkers, our classmates. I I don't want to offend them. What do you think is offensive, if you invite them to church or if they stand before God one day when it's too late and say, why didn't you tell me? It's not hard. Hey, I go to C3 church. Man, I love C3. I think you would too, Bob. Check it out this Sunday. Just try it once. Less than 15 seconds. Did you know what's interesting? In the Hebrew Hebrew language, the word for word is the same thing as the word for thing. They're the same word and thing. Because in the Hebrew language, word has more weight than something that's spoken in the atmosphere and vanishes. Word has weight like a thing. It's something you give somebody. It's something that they're going to carry in their lives. And Scripture also says our words have the power of life and death. So who, who is it that you could take 15 seconds to invite That on that day, there's the opportunity to meet Jesus. You have no idea what they're drowning with in life because we're great at covering up our mess-ups. Nobody nobody goes on Instagram and says, I suck, my life's terrible, I'm lonely, I'm depressed. Nobody does that. We put the picture like we're having a great time. Did you know people are dying behind smiles every day? What people show us is not real. What's happening in here? Unless you know Jesus and have a personal relationship with Jesus, what's happening in here is a kind of unique emptiness. God created a space inside you that only he can fill. And the only way you find meaning and purpose in life and hope is in a relationship with Jesus. And God has called us. In fact, it's the only reason, if you're a Christ follower, the only reason you're still on planet Earth is to reach people. You're not here to worship. We should worship, but we're going to do that forever. We'll do that in heaven. You're not here to pray. We should pray, but we're going to do that in heaven. The only thing you can do here that you can't do there is reach people. So God left you here with a purpose. And every relationship you have, you view where you work, and maybe you don't like your job, and you're frustrated with your job, but you're failing to recognize your job is not the main reason you're there. You're there strategically to reach people for Jesus that also work there. The street you live on, God knew before the beginning of time you would live on that street. Who have you invited on your street? Do you love your neighbors enough? Do you care about their attorney enough to say, hey, I go to C3, I love it, I think you would too. If you don't have a church, just check it out. Listen, now let me tell you this, let me tell you this. If they have another church, leave them the fat alone, please, 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 please. If they have another, leave them alone. We're not trying to get people to come from other churches here. Because the other... The other thing we need to know is 86% of the people that live in Florida never go to church, not Christmas or Easter. There are plenty of people we can go after. Don't go after, well, you need to come check out my church. It's better than your church. It is, but that's not the motivation. (laughs) And by the way, every pastor should feel that about the church they pastor. That takes nothing away. I think I have the greatest wife in the world. Husbands, you should feel the exact same way. Not about my wife, I'll punch you in the throat, but about your wife. 
Like, it takes nothing away from you if I think my wife is the bomb.com. You should feel that way as well. I'm proud of this church. I love who you are. I love how God uses you. And so many of you, the way you serve, the way you pray, the way you invest, I will say this. If other people in other churches did what you do, they would experience the growth we are experiencing. Because it's not about us. It's about obedience and loving God and loving others. And you do that well. You do it so well. For 40 days the flood kept coming on earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains at a depth of more than 15 cubics. Every living thing that moved, along, moved on the land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swam over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils, every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Why? Why doesn't God end evil? When you look at the evil that happens in our world, why, why doesn't God end evil? Because that's what it takes to end evil. That's the only way to really end evil. Well, couldn't, couldn't God just send them to time out? Like, you're like, couldn't God just do something? He gave them 1,600 years. Okay, but couldn't he give them another chance after that? He did. He gave them another 120 years with the plan of salvation being built right in front of them. What about all the innocent animals that had to die? Innocents are always harmed when people that are guilty live the way they want to live. Innocents are always harmed when we sin. And here's the reality. And I care about you enough, and I love you enough to say what I'm about to say to you, and I want you to remember every single thing I say to you in this room, I have said to myself all week long. In fact, most of the time when I'm speaking, you're just listening to a conversation I've had with God and me all week long. So I'm not exempt from this. I'm in this with you. God wiped out humanity because of sin. We are far too comfortable with our sin. We are way too okay with ignoring what the Word of God says and living how we want to live. We shrug it off like it's no big deal. I don't need to forgive. I'm processing. I don't need to be kind. He's an idiot. I don't need to invite my neighbor because I've had five arguments about them parking their freaking car on the grass. We blow a whole lot of opportunities because we worship our desires more than we worship our Savior. And we are, I hate election years. I hate election years because a lot of you are going to jump on social media and tell everybody who you're voting for, but you haven't told anybody jack squat about who you believe in. And you're going to go on social media and throw up with all of your opinions. And I'm not saying it's not important. It is important. But here's the reality. I've never met one person that read a social media post they disagreed with and thought, my gosh, I've been wrong. I'm changing everything. I've never met one person that's done it. All you do is stir up feelings in people. We'd be way more effective if we leverage our influence to help people meet Jesus because that's way more important. Who my Savior is is far more important than who I'm voting for. And by the way, by the way, while we're talking about it, I don't, I don't know who you're going to vote for. I don't want to know. I'll tell you who I'm going to vote for. Actually, I won't. 
But, but <laughs> listen, there are some serious things. There are some important things. We need to be, as Christ followers, actively involved in the political system. Absolutely. We need to be passionate about what we believe. But we need to be far more passionate about people knowing Jesus because there's not one person you're going to vote for that's going to save our nation. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Now, you can vote for people that are going to screw it up a lot worse, if that's even possible. But that's a separate issue. That's a separate issue. Stop it. Stop it. Don't go there. We forget what it takes to wipe out sin. Whatever that thing is that God convicts you about periodically, that thing in your life that, ugh, I know I need to stop doing that. Or, man, I, I know I need to start doing that. Whatever that thing is, do you understand that sin is what put Jesus on the cross? My sin is what put Jesus on the cross? I, I don't really feel that. If you can live in a way that you can live contrary to what Scripture teaches and how you view people, you can live contrary to what Scripture teaches and how you handle your sexuality, you can live contrary to what Scripture teaches and how you handle your finances and how you treat your family and raise your kids and how you deal in relationships. If you can live contrary to Scripture and you never feel convicted, hey, according to the Word of God, you don't know Jesus. You may have a kind of a faith and a kind of a God, but you don't really know Jesus because when you know Jesus, the Bible says God disciplines those he loves. And there's going to be a sense inside me of, man, that's wrong. And even if it's something I wrestle with, there is at least a wrestling. God, that's wrong. That's why the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christ followers that ever lived, said there are things I don't want to do that I do. And there are things that I know I should do that I don't do. He's wrestling with it. He's not perfect, but there's a wrestling. He feels the conviction. What do you feel convicted about? What is it that God has to keep saying to you? And what would change in your life if you became more like Noah and God only had to say it one more time, maybe that time's this morning, and you said, okay, God, I'm going to obey. What could God change in your life in an instant that you've been trying to change for years? And it's just a lack of obedience. We are far too comfortable with our sin and far too optional with our obedience and far too casual with our God. We live a life of entitlement, expecting God to forgive us because he has to, because he's God, without considering what that forgiveness cost him. His only son. I love you. I've got four kids, and I wouldn't let one of them die for any of you. And you wouldn't either. You think about the love of God and what it cost him? It's the story of humanity. It's your story and it's my story, the story of our choices. It's the choice to follow God or do what I want. Genesis 6 and 7 tells us about a judgment that affected all of humanity. Revelation tells us about a coming judgment that's going to affect all of humanity. This is a preview of what's coming. And we have a choice to step into the salvation that God has built for us or to be destroyed because of our sin. The entire world except for one family, was wiped out in one day. Did you know today, right now, today, this day, 189,757 people will die. Today. 189,757 people will take their last breath today. Did you know that everybody that dies tomorrow, because tomorrow 189,757 people will die, everybody that will die tomorrow Today they have plans for tomorrow. 
And when you take your last breath, the only thing that's going to matter in all of life is where you're going and who's going to be there with you. So the first question is, do you know Jesus? That's the salvation. That's how we're rescued. He came to rescue us. But he rescued us to be rescuers. Not only do you know Jesus, who do you know that doesn't that you can invite? The incredible thing, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. God tells Noah to build a boat. It takes him 120 years. And God saves mankind ultimately through Noah's obedience. God invites Noah to be a part of what he's doing to rescue humanity. This week, and now between October 29th, God is inviting us to be a part of what he wants to do. He's the only one that can save somebody and change somebody. He's the only one that can bring hope to somebody's life. And yet our God loves us so much, he invites us in to be a part of rescuing humanity. So who is it? Who is it that you're going to invite? And man, if we, if we believe that heaven's real, and if we believe that hell's real, and if we believe that Jesus came and died on a cross, I don't know how we believe that and we don't invite. Like if, if, if this stuff is real, how do we fill our calendars and roll through a week with all of our busyness doing a whole lot of things that nobody's going to remember 100 years from now? If this is real, this is the priority. This is the most important. And I view every single relationship I have as given to me by God to influence somebody's life, to help them know Jesus and help them stop drowning and help them find purpose and a Savior in their lives. So who is it? Who is it in your life? I'm praying that God puts name after name after name in your life. We've got until October 29th. Who is it you can invite? that God is going to change not just their eternity, but their family tree because you took 15 seconds to love them enough to invite them. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you so much for your deep abiding love for every single person in this room. I pray that you would put names on our minds and hearts today and throughout this week and in the coming days. And that we would, you would only have to, you would only have to tell us once. Invite John, invite Sam, invite Mary, invite Susie. You'd only have to tell us once and we would obey just like Noah. God, may we be a people that have a quick yes to what you ask us to do. With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're here today and you know that the greatest need of your life is to know God in a personal way. You've known about God, but you don't really know God. The first service ended this morning. I had a conversation with a gentleman. His name is Rick. He began to share his story with me, and I said, Rick, has there ever been a point in your life when you invited Jesus to come into your life? And he said, no. I said, would you like to do that right now? He said, yes. And sitting in this room in a chair, he prayed a simple prayer to invite Jesus to come in his life, and now his eternity's changed. Hey, I'd love to lead you in that prayer. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you know that today's the day you need to give your life to Jesus, have your sins forgiven, know that you've got a home in heaven after this life when you take that last breath, but you've got the Spirit of God living inside you in this life. Man, I, I'd love to lead you in a prayer. You can pray it out loud or you can pray it in the quietness of your heart. The Bible says Jesus knows even our thoughts. You just pray this prayer. Dear God, I know that I need you. Jesus, please come into my life. Forgive me of my sin and help me to live for you. As best I know how, I commit my life to you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us. If you just prayed that prayer, we would love to know it. You can text your name to 407-487-8311 and Pastor Byron will be praying for you this week. And also, we want to thank you for your faithful generosity. You can go to giveC3.cc or you can text C3 Orlando to 77977. Thank you so much for how you give. And if you are in Central Florida, please join us in person at our campus at 9.30 or 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Have a great week.